I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. Thank you to everyone who's completed our survey. We said it last week that we're very grateful, but I just thought it was worth pointing out for another week that you guys are amazing. Ian and I spent the last hour before we started recording today going over some of the feedback that we've got and I can promise you that we're going to make some suggestions about what we're going to do and change which is to say not a lot of change but some maybe some new things that we've been encouraged to do by your feedback and we're going to try and let you know what some of those are over the next one to two weeks Ian's back from CES Chief did you have a nice sleep after last week I meant well, to ask you I, I, I sort of did yeah um, I mean I, I realised listening back to that podcast that I sounded ver- on the verge of suicide in that uh, LG booth. If anyone hasn't listened to last week's show with uh, Ian's contributions from the floor of Las Vegas, uh, do check it out. But but do cut him some slack, because as he said, he was a very tired man. Oh, so tired. This week, however, we are going to talk about several things. And the first we're going to talk about is that apparently the BBC iPlayer is to be reinvented. Uh, in his New Year message to staff, BBC Director General Tony Hall said the Beeb needs to in- reinvent the iPlayer. And he said specifically that the iPlayer, quote, was the biggest revolution of the last charter period um he said it's been the number one video on demand service in the uk reaching more people than any other Uh, and now he says we need to make the leap from just being a catch-up service to a must visit destination in its own right he said the goal is to uh for iplayer to, to continue to be the number one online tv service in the uk which means it has to double its reach it has to quadruple the amount of time people spend on it every week and they want to do it within the next four years which he pointed out quite rightly is probably going to be quite tough now there are a number of ways that this can be achieved but one of the things that has been widely discussed is the idea of allowing people to download entire series in one go before they've even been broadcast because at the moment if you're just a catch-up service you have to wait for the thing to be broadcast so the netflix sorry the iplayer is it's sort of hampered by the the traditional broadcasting model of it being once per week which is not the way that a lot of people expect things to be they're too impatient and this has been seen as possibly quite a good thing but certainly a radical change um ian when you read about this what was your immediate uh, takeaway well interesting because it it felt very um it, it felt for the bbc it felt quite competitive and kind of like they want to sort of dominate the space which is something the bbc really really shies away from on the whole like it almost always ends up being a, a leader in whatever it does because of the size of it and the funding it has but it never usually sort of sets out to be that thing like it you know saying that the i mean i remember this from when i worked there you know you would never be able to say, oh, we want to be the, you know, we want to be the biggest this, uh, you know, whatever, because that just wasn't the ethos of the company. Um, so I see where they're going with this. Um, I think, obviously, as we move more and more online, it makes sense for iPlayer to be improved. And at the moment, I would say that it's, whilst it's a very, very good catch-up service, 
it lacks a lot of the things that we need in a, a video on demand service. So Netflix and Amazon both have uh, 4K HDR. Um, we have discussed that the BBC is looking into doing 4K and HDR, particularly with Planet Earth, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago. And, and again, this goes back to the BBC. Uh, you know, like there are some organisations in the UK, and I've, I, I, this is one of the things, one of the reasons I always fight for the BBC. And and BT is the same. They put a lot of effort into getting it right technically uh, like bt won't roll out a broadband service unless it's absolutely sure it's going to be really good and work really well now there's plenty of things you can criticize bt for uh, and the bbc is the same uh, you know plenty of things you can criticize it for but it do- does try to get standards right make sure things are open and and good uh, and that's why i think it's sort of it has lagged a little bit in terms of getting up there with those premium pay services that you know, immediately just launch 4K. There are a couple of things that stood out to me. I mean, firstly, the idea of doing box sets on demand. They have actually tried this with Peter Kay's car share. That was put up as a box set that you could you could binge watch on. And certainly there are lots of box sets post-broadcast available to be downloaded. And I noticed over Christmas when I was watching regular broadcast TV that they promote the iPlayer as a place to binge watch on box sets. So it's clearly already part of their strategy. It's something that works quite well. But then just this morning in bed, I was reading at the news and I saw that the final episode of Sherlock had leaked online. And I also read in that story that they were showing the final episode to journalists ahead of broadcast, but they didn't include the last four minutes. You know, and ah. all of this was to prevent spoilers. They put out a big bunch of tweets and social media activity to say, you know, stay spoiler free or something, something like that. And so the idea of putting really big deal Sunday night dramas all up at once massively increases the amount of spoilers that can that can potentially leak out for people who haven't yet got to the end I mean look spo- that that's an interesting that's an interesting one and spoilers uh, are something that almost ruined my life in a way because I have to spend so much time avoiding them um, you, you were going to finish finish your sentence and then I'll, I'll come back on that afterwards because I, I interrupted you sorry well, it was essentially just going to be to conclude that if they if they turn this into an on-demand place for TV, if I, I could see it being a little bit more like Netflix in that you tend not to get the very latest stuff like immediately straight away. Always, there will be certain new things that will never be made available for all-in-one download. But simultaneously, you might get access to a huge wealth of back catalogue that is not available commercially. For example, something like Dragon's Den, you know, which has been broadcasting again recently. And you can buy some really early stuff on DVD, but the, you know, huge numbers of those series you can't buy anywhere. They're not available for download. The only way you can actually acquire them is through things like BitTorrent and YouTube. Yeah. And so it seems like an opportunity to say, well, some stuff we'll put online as it's being broadcast, you know, things that aren't necessarily going to be affected by continuity or spoilers. I look at things like, I don't know if any of these are on TV, Homes Under the Hammer, Bargain Hunt, all those kinds of like daytime TV shows and and less narrative, you know, plot driven stuff that, that affects Sunday night TV schedules and stuff. They could put all those online very easily, but there'll still be um, there'll still be those ones that you have to watch live or that you would want to watch live, but complemented with a huge back catalogue of stuff that isn't available anyway, that could be great. 
Well, now here's where that becomes a problem, right? So everything you said is perfectly reasonable, and if you look at the, if you look at the BBC ex, from externally, that's all quite logical. What you have to do is put yourself <laughs> in the position of a grumpy executive at ITV who um, who who has access to a similar range of uh, archive material and could do exactly the same thing, but won't because it costs money. And what they will do is say, "Oh, the BBC can't do this. It's not in the market." For or on demand that we best leave that to commercial providers like Netflix and Amazon. And and that is a real problem. Um, You know, what you suggested is reasonable. And if you think about the BBC's uh, just alone, the radio archive, like every single radio programme broadcast for essentially ever is, I I think, available digitally now in terms of if you work at the BBC... You can call the library and they will send you a CD with a radio show on from any time in its past. So that already exists. So why isn't that online, you might ask? Well, I mean, that's that's basically the point, isn't it? Like They, they could put it online, but they don't because there are rights issues. There are, you know, uh, people would complain about, you know, commercial providers would complain. And some of it's also done by independent producers who retain rights. Um so it, it gets very complicated, and I think that that it's going to be the legislation or the legislative problems that will hamper any expansion of iPlayer far more than any technical or you know will, uh, because I think everyone wants iPlayer to be great because I want to be able to go on it and go oh, I really fancy watching Only Fools and Horses from you know episode two or whatever and. But of course, you know at the same time that cannibalizes DVD sales and all that kind of stuff and. The BBC's being pushed again to be more commercial because, uh, you know, people don't want to pay and the licence fee funding keeps getting cut or, you know, divvied up amongst other interested parties, uh, like, you know, for funding, say, for broadband and stuff like that. Um, and the idea being that, you know, the BBC has a huge archive that it can monetize and sell, like, DVDs of. And, um, and so you've got to draw that line as well. Uh, and it is interesting because, you know, uh, Hall said that the goal was to be the number one online TV service in the UK. That doesn't stop it from making part of it commercial. Well, because everything the BBC does takes quite a while and the goal for this huge reinvention of the iPlayer is to be done by 2020, I don't think it'll be too long before we start hearing rumblings about what the BBC might do with the iPlayer. So now is a wonderful time for you to have a think and let us know at podcast at natelangson.com what you think the iPlayer should look like by 2020. What should it be offering? Should it be open to commercial broadcasters? Should it have a pay-for library that's incorporated as part of it, where maybe you watch the latest series as a box set for free, but then it recommends you pay for the previous box sets for a fee, whatever that fee may be? podcast at nateslankson.com would love to hear your views on this uh, which we could talk about next week Ian let's switch over to a slightly different type of technology an antiquated technology you might say frequency modulation (laughs) FM radio it's not as antiquated as amplitude modulation well what is Um, the wheel (laughs) no am radio no this is fm radio and the reason we're talking about fm radio this week is because norway turned it off or rather it 
started the process of turning off FM in the country completely. Now, we're a show, which we say at the top of the show, the UK-focused technology podcast. So why the hell are we talking about Norway turning off FM? Let me tell you a little bit why. It made me wonder why we haven't done this yet. Now, let me just take a little bit of background here. Norway started switching off these FM transmitters. It's the first country in the world to dump this standard that's been around for the best part of 80 years. It's changing over to DAB, the digital audio broadcasting system, and it reckons it will give citizens more stations, better coverage, you know, time shifting, blah, 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 at least according to the Norwegian government. And obviously people aren't happy over there because unlike when you switched over from digital, from analog to digital TV, which many people listening will remember doing, You'd buy a cheap little box, plug it into your telly. All of a sudden, your TV was fine to receive digital signals with very little else needed in the majority of cases. You can't do that with radio. Some of these radios cost about three quid, and they've been working for 10 years, and they're just going to stop working. So a lot of people have been complaining. And we've had plans in the UK switchover um, program, for want of a better term, to switch off FM for a while. And... I was listening to Tom Merritt on Daily Tech News Show, actually, in episode 2944. Uh, they had a great discussion about the issue at large and sort of the, the, the big history to, to the, behind this decision. And go and have a listen to that if you're interested. But he, I just had to look up the UK's history with FM to try and work out why we still have this. And I found some facts, Ian. I love it when you find facts, Nate. I am a fact finder. I'm an FF. <laughs> so here are some facts about FM radio in the UK. Number one. We've had it since the mid-50s. I basically just told you that about two minutes ago, so fair enough. Uh, But what became DAB was in development as far back as the 1980s. And in 1990, we started experimenting with digital radio. We made it publicly available in about uh, 1995. Now, 1995 is 22 years ago, so we've had over two decades of digital radio broadcasts in Britain. Around 1995, about 2% of the country had internet access. Um, 2%. That's not very many. But it was at the time when Windows 95 was being released. And so digital radio was sort of expanding and developing and being rolled out alongside increasing internet speeds, people adopting modern web, well, then modern web browsers, uh, and lots of internet radio technology and compression systems, things like real audio. Remember that? Like you could stream decent sounding quality radio down your simple dial up phone line. The problem is neither of those two technologies really changed dramatically between then and now until you get to the point of catch up and download and on demand and, you know, crazy high quality audio. Um, And so we're here in 2017 and we're killing off headphone jacks in our phones and we're considering tech products that are like four years old as obsolete. And yet we still have FM, but we also still have DAB and we still have internet radio and i looked up some data from the government and i found out that the government's criteria states that we can't switch over until the majority of the population are listening to the radio through dab so people aren't migrating hugely to dab because they're also listening on their devices the internet has increased you know alongside dab radio and so people who may have listened much more on dab may have started moving simply to listening over their phone. Uh, certainly over the last 10 years, that's that's the case. And analog radios are still on sale here, and huge numbers of people are still using them. The number of houses in the UK apparently that have DAB radios 
regardless of whether they use them or not, is about 60%. So it's, you know, it's nowhere near close to the kind of threshold that the government needs to be able to say, now's the time to turn them off. Uh, and then the final fact is that coverage isn't quite as good. Um, it's about 90% for, for houses and maybe as high as 97%, depending on the station. But for roads, it could be 10, 20, 30% less than that, depending on where you are. So... To draw this to a conclusion, the internet has taken a lot of people who may be using DAB, I believe, and the rollout and the importance of that rollout has just not been significant enough into all pockets of the UK to make it a viable switch over for people to not have to have an analog radio at all. And it's left us in a position where, for the next few years at least, there is no plans uh, to even start thinking about switching off FM radio. And Norway's government was very different and and more progressive in the fact that they ignored all of those figures and did it anyway. So that's why we still have FM radio in Britain and why it's probably not going away anytime soon. Ian, I'm sick of my own voice. Uh, it's time for you to say some words. Right. Okay. Well, I've, I've got some. I've got some words for you. Uh, first word is that the problem with DAB is that it didn't ever really offer much of a boost in terms of. Uh, you know, giving um, there are some benefits to the end user, but there's not a quality benefit. Now, I'm a big believer in DAB, and I'm not one of the people that says, "Oh, you know, it's absolutely nowhere near as good as FM." Um, in good circumstances, DAB can be very, very nice indeed. Um, I I feel like uh, some of the commercial broadcasters try to squeeze too much into their space and don't give it enough bandwidth. But we are talking about tiny, tiny amounts of total bandwidth here, and also. Uh, bear in mind, there are. There, I believe there's an allowance for dab multiplexes, and I need to check this. Really, there is. I, I, I've got. I've got a bonus fact for you if you want, because I think we have three multiplexes. So. Yes, we do, and, and I think one of them is completely unused, isn't it? And I, I, my understanding is there's nowhere near enough demand from the uh, stations to to fill up another one. Well, I can tell you a little bit of data because I found out some bonus facts about um, about dab compression if you're interested. Yeah. Because one radio station in in the country has a significantly higher quality signal than all others by a significant margin, and that is BBC Radio Three. Yes, I mean that's a no brainer, really. Radio Three is is broadcast at as high as 192 kilobits per second stereo, which by comparison, Radio 1 is 128 kilobits per second stereo, which is the same bit rate, at least, as what iTunes launched at in terms of its, its downloads. There's, a, there's also an additional problem here in that if you are using the original DAB standard, which is obviously a lot of those initial DAB radios that were sold only support this standard, then it's MP2. It's ancient. It's like an, it's MPEG-1 layer 2 or something. So it isn't a very good coding system like if you well there's a reason for that 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 compression takes a lot less power to decode yes uh, of course and um and that's uh, you know electricity was a huge part of the whole dab problem in the in the beginning because it was uh, at first literally impossible to have a battery powered dab radio that was you know capable of running for more than about three minutes without running out of juice and obviously as sophistication increases in electronics we get to the point where that's less of a problem um but Ultimately, I, I, the, there are better ways of delivering radio. Like for a start, you could probably deliver it over, uh, you know, digit, you know, your data connection on your phone. That would be one op- option. Uh, you know, the BBC could go to all of the service providers in the UK and go, "Hey, listen, uh, you know, I think we think we could do a deal here whereby we're going to be saving a huge amount of money on transmission. What about if we give you some money and then you don't count digital radio listening as part of the data uh, for people listening? Or what about?" 
using satellite radio like they do in America. Um, now, you know, it's a bit more complicated because it, uh, it obviously requires entirely different equipment, but also it gives you immediate 100% coverage of the UK. Um, and, and that feels like something that might be quite valuable when we're still struggling. Like I will listen, I, I have a dab radio in the car and I'll, li- and I will prefer to listen to it on dab because I like this, you know, I like it. I think it's really good, but a lot of the time I'll be driving around and it will just fizzle out. Um, and it doesn't do well with big buildings. So I, I kind of find myself wondering whether or not it was ever the right system for radio, um, and, um, satellite doesn't really solve that problem either. I have to say, you know, like it, it, it's not ideal in built-up areas. But I don't know. It, I, FM could stay around forever. Uh, can you think of a reason to get rid of it? The reason to turn it off is the cost of supporting it at all. If the usage of it diminishes to a negligible level, but I mean that's clearly not happening, right? So people are still using FM, and it isn't that expensive. I mean, you have to maintain transmitter networks, but. Yeah. Yeah. And well, to round this off, I, I looked up some de- details and the, there was a, a couple of good figures on which the, the um, but what are they? What do we call them? What are which kind of consumer? Con- yeah, consumer, consumer you know, publication, in public interest kind of thing. Yeah, they reckon that DAB will pass the 50% mark in terms of usage by tw- early 2018. And hence, it's highly unlikely a switchover will happen before 2020. And let's be honest, even those numbers seem kind of ambitious. And even if we did pass it by 2018, or even if we pass it this year, the chances of us starting to have conversations about it being gone by 2020 just seem so far away. So I think it's going to be years before we see ourselves replicating anything like Norway does, uh, particularly with the BBC licence fee issue being a part of uh, a part of this. Um, I think that it would be a difficult argument to have with the BBC Trust as well. Um, so anyway, that's... That's our conversation about FM for this week. But let us know um, any thoughts you have, of course. Podcast at natelangson.com. Well, Ian, the cookies are crumbling. That's what happens. I don't know when or why, but we'll find out in a minute. Well, the when is uh, the when is now, and the why is because the European Commission has proposed a bunch of things. We're going to discuss two of these things that they have proposed as part of their bunch. Uh, mainly, we're choosing these because of the immediate impact on UK users. Now, the first uh, part of uh, proposals the European Commission has made is to relax the requirements that are forcing websites to show you pop-up banners. Every time you visit a website for the first time on every device you visit it on, asking you to consent to cookies being used. Now, I doubt that there is anybody listening to this show, and by all means, let us know if you are one of these people who hasn't heard of this, who hasn't heard or seen, rather, these pop-up banners. I accept. Well, of course you accept. Has anyone said, ooh, oh goodness, oh no. No, no, no. Back. (laughs) Unsee. Mustn't. Uh, No, you don't. You press accept because you want to use the damn website. And they're incredibly tedious. The proposal from the European Commission is to allow users to set a default within their web browser to apply to all sites that that browser is used to visit. Now, this would also... Pointless. Honestly, I am beside myself with rage. Carry on. Okay. It would mean that potentially you would have to do this across each individual browser that you're using. Maybe you use Firefox or Chrome on your 
on your PC, maybe you have a Mac at work or vice versa, you have a phone and, and maybe an iPad, uh, you would have to set it on those unless they synced. But it would be a lot less intrusive than having to say yes, 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 yes on everything. But in additional, uh, in, in addition, banners would be removed for cookies that do not allegedly invade privacy. So for example, if you're on a website that has a shopping cart like Amazon or a, or a bookshop or something, you cookies are used to store what you maybe add into your cart just for that session and those would not require permission however sites that rely on huge access to intrusive cookies like facebook and google um, may be concerned of course because there's a blanket vote uh, essentially by users to not consent to any of them which could mean that all of these services don't work unless they say they accept at least that's one of the concerns uh ian before we get into a bit more discussion about this and, and what the twos and pros and cons are here let let your rage out open that mouth and let forth this stream what is the point of having a cookie default setting across the whole browser like what the i the idea that you would say to people okay so we're going to warn you every time about these terrible terrible cookies that are definitely spying on you all the time but you can just decide to turn that off across a whole browser like that is a nonsense like why would you do that if you either believe in the idea that people need to be warned about cookies or it's all just a nonsense which let's be honest we all know it is it is a complete and utter nonsense it was the probably i wouldn't be surprised if there's a single human being in this country somewhere who voted to leave the EU based entirely on being sick and tired of that cookie message. Like, there has got to be someone out there whose entire Brexit decision was based upon that flipping message coming up every day. Um, it is. It was always a stupid idea. Um, it was ridiculous to make everyone implement it. I'm currently in prison because I didn't implement it on any of my UK-hosted websites. Uh, so, you know... The whole thing is a nonsense. And setting one setting in your browser to turn them all off is just absurd. I mean, it's obviously it's great because I'll do it immediately. But why have them at all? You're you're basically just defeating the point of them, even though there was almost no point to begin with. Plus, plus of course, browsers already have settings for the level of privacy you want. And so it's going to force them to, to have potentially an additional set of settings hard-coded into the browser which people then may find confusing to compare to the other settings that don't exist on other regional versions of that website of that browser perhaps so the confusion risk here is is enormous i think that the most likely outcome is that as you install most people will just pick the medium level and that'll be fine and in that sense, this is just a way of the EU backtracking without looking too much like it's a backtrack, at least on paper. Yeah, it, it just this was the most this this piece of legislation was always the one of the things that proves to me that politicians don't understand technology. Like that cookie warning wastes thousands of hours of you know human time because you have to click on a button, or you don't have to click on a button, and you can still read the site. It is stupid. It was it always is. stupid. It should never have happened. And it, I, they should just get rid of it. They should go, you know what? This was a mistake. But the fact is, we will probably never stop seeing that message because there will be sites out there that put it on and they just never take it off. And we're just going to be stuck with it forever now. Well, the changes are hoped to be introduced by May 2018, although that might be a tight deadline, some experts have warned. 
there's also the risk, of course, about whether this would harm smaller websites. You know, I think about Facebook and Google. On the one hand, you know, if you have one one cookie to rule them all or one decision to rule them all, it'd be quite easy for them to say, hey, we don't seem to be able to put cookies on your machine, so you can't use our system. So you have to just press the button to accept cookies. And then, again, whole existence made null and void in the first place but still they can do that across many many properties you know there are so many places where facebook might be able to put a pop-up saying hey we need to enable cookies in order to give you this service and that's not true for small websites there may be some small websites that that don't command enough power in the single moment of opportunity they have to ask a user to enable more intrusive cookies, you know, for want of a better expression, and maybe that will harm those smaller sites. And so part of me thinks that leaving as it is right now, short of having a better solution overall, might actually work out better for the smaller guys than the bigger guys that have got the power to get people to enable cookies simply by default to the fact that they have very, very compelling services. So that's my argument against changing the cookie law. Um, It's not a super strong argument, but it is one that I think has some believability, right? Yeah, it does. Okay, okay. Uh, We'll follow this, of course, and check back, uh, but this may only be a year away from becoming a new thing, so uh, it may not be too long before we hear more about it. The second and final thing I wanted to point out that the Commission had proposed this this week that may change your browsing habits concerns ad blocking. Uh, Essentially, a lot of publishers use ad blocking, or rather they use blockers to block the ad blockers, and you'll have seen this if you've ever visited a website with an ad blocker enabled that says something like, please disable your ad blocker or we're not going to show you this content because you've got an ad blocker. Like the certain site that I write some stuff for. Yes, or the certain site that I used to write certain (laughs) stuff for. And, you know, um, some people oppose media companies being able to block users who use ad blockers because they think it might be an invasion of privacy. Essentially, if a website is looking to see if you have a, a website extension that that blocks ads then you should be asked permission for that check to take place obviously the other side of the fence and the fence that i think ian and i probably lean on is that if i am accessing a website to get content for free then it it is up to the publisher to say well if we can't display everything we need to display to you in order to support this content then that's our that's our decision to make. Yeah. And we should be able to block ad blockers. Now, the commission has come out and supported the decision, has supported the movement to allow companies to block ad blockers. Uh, it's The new proposals specifically say it's fine. Now, I looked through this entire proposal to try and find a really useful bit of explanation about this. And I did find a great paragraph, which I'm going to read here in full so you can see their stance. Quote, Users have the freedom to install software on their devices that disables the display of advertisements. At the same time, the commission is aware that quote-unquote free content on the internet is often funded by advertisement revenue. Therefore, the proposal allows website providers to check if the end user's device is able to receive their content, including advertisements, without obtaining the end user's consent. If a website provider notes that not all content can be received by the end user, it is up to the website provider to respond appropriately, for example, by asking end users if they use an ad blocker and would be willing to switch off that ad blocker for the respective website. So that's a pretty full-out ad ad blocker blocking is fine. And a lot of publishers obviously are very happy about this because it, it... 
it clears up the legal gray area that has existed between media companies and privacy campaigners for one thing one side saying look this is our business come and use our content please have it for free don't pay us any money but we have to show you ads and the privacy campaign is saying no because in order to do that it's an invasion of privacy this makes it really really clear which side the law at least in europe is on and it's on the side of the media company so i think it's good that this has been cleared up and to be perfectly honest ian and i have a very obvious bias in favor of being able to show ads because we you know, we write for publications that that do display ads. Yeah, and, and also, so, if, you, if you're not if you're not willing to accept advertising advertising on a on a website, then you you sort of aren't a customer of that website, and they don't really have any duty to provide you anything at all. So, I think ultimately, it has to be. You know, if, if someone's paying to run a web server and paying for internet access to deliver content to you, it's up really up to them who they send that to in the same way that a pub can say, you can't come in for a beer, I don't want to sell you anything, or any shop, in fact. I think the knock-on effect to this will be, if it's okay to block an ad blocker, then the nature of what an ad blocker is will change. Because as long as there are ads, there are going to be people who want to try and block them. And I think we'll see new technologies that allow the ad to technically load and be displayed, but it will be covered up Well, I've got to say, like, here's, a, here's the thing, right? The EU is sort of missing a trick with both of these pieces of legislation because what they could do that would be quite smart is to say, we're going to put some rules out about what you, you know, like, it would be fine to say that if a cookie is very invasive, that then the consumer must be alerted but they could have done that with the browser companies and said look we, he, here's the thing let's why don't we use your browser to tell us whether or not a cookie is being naughty and then you give people the clarity that they need rather than just a blanket thing that everyone ignores and reduces the sensitivity of people you know and, and they don't they no longer want to, they don't care about the message because they're so used to seeing it and then with advertising why not do some sort of legislation about, uh, you know, ad networks, you know, making them responsible, making it much harder for a malicious advert to get on an ad network, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and just the whole thing could be a force for good if it was properly managed, but it hasn't been. Although the ad blocking part of this is much better. I think that legislation is much more sensible than the co- than the cookie one ever was. Let us know your thoughts as ever. Podcast at natelangson.com. These are all proposals right now. Uh, everything, the ad blocking stuff, the um, the cookie law, all proposals. But it will at least, in the case of the ad blocking, provide some clarity about where the EU stands on ad blocking. So expect maybe to see some discussion about that over the coming months. Well, finally, just a really quick one to end on. I didn't really want to go the entire show and not reference the Nintendo Switch. There are tons and tons of sites out there that can talk about the games and the launch lineup. And, you know, we don't necessarily know that all of our listeners uh, want to hear about video game news necessarily. But I did think we could talk about it from the perspective of how much it's going to cost uh, for the hardware compared to um, the rest of the market in, in Britain. And also how that compares strategy-wise, to the launch of the Nintendo Wii back uh, 10 years ago. The Nintendo Switch is going to cost £280 when it launches in the UK. That's according to prices on the retailer game. 27999 that includes the console, uh, the hardware that the console requires, and the controller. It doesn't include a game, 
or anything additional other than the console itself. And the games are priced on the higher end, around the £50 mark. So it's very definitely going at the premium cost um, side of the market. Now, that compares to the just-announced white PS4, which costs £259.99. So it's not the PS4 Pro, the, the new fancy 4K one. This is just the, I would say, the standard but current version of the PS4, uh, which the Nintendo Switch is going to be more expensive than, you know, by, by uh, and, £20. Pounds. And lower powered than by quite a wide margin. Uh, yes, in terms of pure graphical horsepower, well, but, you know, they're, they're quite the, different consoles. Isn't, yes, they are. Isn't the Switch essentially a Tegra? It's powered by Nintendo t- uh, by uh, Nvidia Tegra, Nvidia yeah. Ian. Nate, once I said it once. <laughs> You've said it once, but I've been reminding you of that once for ten yes, years, so and, I feel like it's still a thing. Well, and also, but do you remember that time when you mispronounced Maplin in quite a staggering way? What did I say? Maplin. Isn't it Maplin? No, it's Maplin. Why has it got one P then? I have no idea, but it doesn't matter. Nvidia is not a real word. You can say it no. how you want. It's just a collection of letters. True. Well, the. Nintendo Switch uh, is going to cost <laughs> 279.99 compared to the PS4's 259. Now let's look over at the Xbox um, <laughs> One S. Uh, that comes with I couldn't find on game just the standard Xbox One console on its own, but never mind because it's a point of comparison. Xbox One S, FIFA 17 bundled and Fallout 4 bundled, uh, so two vague, you know fairly recent top tier games costs 230 quid. You know, so a hell of a lot less than the Nintendo Switch with no games for a console that has two games. So the conclusion is that the Switch is coming out into the UK market and well, the global market as well with a premium price point compared to its main competitors. Now, I looked back up at um, original prices for the Nintendo Wii, the Xbox 360, and the PlayStation 3. And in the Wii, for the Wii launch in 2006, the Wii came out at £179. So it was considered a really accessible family console compared to the £280 that the, H, that the HD Xbox One cost, so like the, the one that most people would go and buy. Uh, that was 280 quid. Uh, uh, in the same year, in 2006. And then, if you remember, a few months later, we got the PlayStation 3 announced with a UK retail price of 425 quid. That's 425 quid in 2007. Um, so the the 179 quid the Wii came out at was just like... there was It was a no-brainer. If you wanted one of the three new consoles and you weren't super bothered about crazy HD graphics and, and everything, the Wii was such an accessible family you know a choice for families of of most budgets and incomes whereas the ps4 really wasn't that's totally changed this time around and and you know the switch is coming out with games that are going to cost just as much as them on any other console um and a console that costs at least compared to some offers more than either a ps4 or an xbox um obviously there are more expensive bundles of you know there's a ps4 pro out there's the xbox um what's the one called coming out scorpio that'll be more expensive but still in terms of just pretty much like for like that the switch is coming out more expensive than all of them but none of that matters because it's nintendo and it it runs by completely different rules and people buy nintendo consoles for very different reasons um and mario <laughs> essentially and 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 that and uh you know legend of zelda and and those are games that you can't get anywhere else uh well I mean, you can get mario on an iphone now can't you but that's not exactly the same thing i'll tell you a little i'll tell you a little story here little little brief story why i'm excited about the switch in general is i mostly uh, am a pc gamer these days not because of any 
snobbery or PC master race stuff. Simply the fact that I've got a very high-end gaming PC and, you know, with Steam and everything, it's just a a platform preference. Uh, But I have a PS4 and I have an Xbox One as well, and I rarely use them, but I do sometimes use them for console exclusives like Final Fantasy XV. I was playing through that with with Kate, my my fiance. We we both played through Final Fantasy XV together. And man, you, you turn it on, update you put the disc in install you start the game up update and that might happen a couple of times over the course of of the game depending on your your bad timing so my hope my hope and we don't know this yet but my real hope is that if the nintendo switch can work like a console used to in that you turn it on a game starts straight away which it really could because the games are on a cartridge rather than a cd or a blu-ray and it you know, out of the box just kind of works like a PS2 or or a GameCube or something. That to me is just going to be the most refreshing experience in the world to have. I mean, it is going to be internet connected. They will have a pay for online service. There will be updates to games, I'm sure. But if they could just move it a bit further back towards how it used to be, at, that makes it feel like a console and not a mid-range gaming PC and a console shaped box that is enough reason for me to say i do my gate my main gaming on a pc and i do my fun console gaming on a nintendo switch that to me is worth that price um and i'd be happy to pay it i don't disagree i mean i i sort of think that switch is their most innovative idea for a long time like it takes what they were sort of trying to do with the wii u and actually does what everyone sort of thought they were going to do with the wii u which is sort of turn it into a handheld console um i I don't, I just, I, here was what I said on Twitter and it, I, it's, it's still true. If it had been £200, I'd have bought it on the spot. Like I'd have immediately found somewhere to pre-order. Me too. Um, 279 I don't necessarily think it's a complete outrage. I, I can see the value of it. I think the accessories are more of a concern because it's what, 60 odd quid for that pro controller. Uh, and the pro controller looks a lot more usable for serious gaming than using the bundled charging pack for the the two individual controllers but i don't know mario man and i love mario galaxy and that and mario looks like a it looks very much like a Gal- a mario galaxy you know in a different way if you see what i mean it it had watching the launch trailer for mario reminded me of super mario galaxy and and that's my favorite game well one of my favorite games on any console because it's just so beautifully playable well Ian is beautifully he's just beautiful <laughs> and and but but it's a real shame that we have to cut that beauty short here um, it, it's like you know cutting a prize winning pony in half it's just a real it's always a shame podcast at natelangston.com though is where you can send your thoughts on either that decision or anything we've talked about this week and before we finish the show let's just check in with tom merritt on daily tech news show to see what's been going on in global tech this week hey thanks nate this week on daily tech news show we reunited the hosts of cnet's buzz out loud to look back at the launch of the iphone 10 years ago we worked through zenimax's court case claiming oculus stole its intellectual property when it hired john carmack to work on the rift discussed whether any of us need over-the-air broadcast in the light of norway shutting down its fm broadcast and looked at the pluses and negatives of nintendo's switch console all that and quite a bit more at dailytechnewsshow.com
Ian, it's been a pleasure. I'm My mood is lifted to a, a high level as a result of this last 45 minutes of being in your presence. It is good. It is a nice way to spend a Sunday, even though I, I wash my hands of it now and then you go back to the millstone of uh, editing and tweaking all my nonsense. Yeah, however, over a couple of beautiful breaded chicken breasts that I'll be eating Ooh. in the process. Suits you, sir. Suits, Suits you. It is. Well, I'm off for a swallow. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.